the whole economic system of public goods was like the recreation system of public pools for whites only, largely. But when the civil rights movement empowered Black families to be able to say and get the courts to agree with them, you know, it's our tax dollars that have funded those public goods all along. And in the case of the swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too. Many towns and cities across the country did what Montgomery, Alabama did, and they drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Italy had a really important election last Sunday, which was won by a trifecta of right-wing populist movements. The next governing coalition is likely to consist of Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, the party of the free-time prime minister who did a lot of damage to Italy's judiciary and separation of powers when he was in office. It's likely to consist of Matteo Salvini, the head of the Lega, founded as the Northern League, a former independence movement turned sort of standard issue far-right nationalist party in Europe. And it is likely to be headed by Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni, the head of the Bravos of Italy, a party with clear roots in the post-fascist movement, a party whose roots go back to the Italian social movement founded by fascist officials in the Republic of Salò, which governed uh, the northern half of Italy after 1943 for a few years. It retains in symbol a flame in the colors of the Italian flag, which is widely understood to have been a reference to undying loyalty for Benito Mussolini. There are very good reasons to worry about this government. It is likely to be fiscally irresponsible. It is consisting of people who reject basic civil rights for sexual minorities, including, for example, the ability for gay parents to adopt a child, and certainly the ability for them to get married. Maloney continues to be close to illiberal, anti-democratic European partners like Viktor Orban in Hungary. And of course, it's simply depressing to see a party with these post-fascist roots become the biggest in Italy. At the same time, I want to explain why I am a little less concerned about this election outcome than some of the press reports have suggested we should be in the last few days. The first part of the reason is that Meloni has at least claimed that she has moderated, that she clearly expresses her support for Ukraine and criticizes Vladimir Putin much more explicitly than most members of the far right in Europe, that she is pro-American and cares about the transatlantic partnership, that she has clearly said that Italy should stay in the euro, and that she has uh, at least declared that fascism is in the past and suspended members of her party who expressed sympathy for fascist leaders. None of that makes her a politician I particularly like or admire, but it should reassure us a little bit about her intentions. The more important point, though, is simply that governments in Italy tend to come and go. That the populist government, which took office four years ago in Italy, between the far-right league and the five-star movement, collapsed after a year and a half or so without having done much to change the country. The fact that Meloni did not win election because Italians have some kind of nostalgia for fascism, but because she was the head of the only party which stayed out of a technocratic government of national unity when Mario Draghi took over as prime minister a year and a half ago. And perhaps most importantly, the fact that in this particular case, three bad things might be better than one. If either Meloni or Salvini, or for that matter Berlusconi, had complete power in Italy, I would be very concerned. 
the fact that there is going to be a coalition government in which Salvini and Berlusconi are going to be doing the best they can to undermine Meloni, especially as she starts to get unpopular because she is starting to be responsible for all of the economic stagnation and all of the frustration with government inefficiency and corruption that is endemic in Italy, makes me hope that this government, like so many governments before it, may not last very long. Certainly no close observer of Italian politics would be shocked to see this government fail in a year or two years. None of that is reason for complacency. None of it is reason not to be sad. As somebody who has deep links to Italy and loves this country, I am worried that I may be overly complacent in this particular case because of my love of the country, because of my unwillingness to think that very, very bad things could again happen there. But for what it's worth at this point, I am saddened and I'm concerned, but I'm not panicked about what the next couple of years will hold for Italy. My guest today is Heather McGee. Heather is a former president of the think tank Demos, the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, and the host of an eponymous podcast. In this conversation, we talked about the ways in which progress for Black Americans have often inspired white Americans to destroy public goods that actually are in the interests of all citizens. And it centers around her suggestion that when done right, racial progress is a positive sum game, is something that obviously helps the people who have been oppressed in the past, but also helps society as a whole to flourish. At the same time, we also debate a little bit about whether this image for a positive sum game might not stand in conflict with Haber's advocacy of race-sensitive public policies, whether the recent embrace by many American institutions of policies which make what somebody gets explicitly depend on the color of their skin doesn't ignite the exactly this kind of zero-sum competition that Haber rightly worries about. Haber McGee, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be with you, Asha. I really look forward to this conversation. I really enjoyed your book, which I read when it came out, and I've really been enjoying your new podcast. The core of your work seems to me to be the idea that we can only prosper together, that we should think of a world in more positive some terms, and how much we lose when people forget that, how much we lose when racial competition, other forms of competition really do damage to the social fabric. How is that framework sort of different from the ways in which we tend to talk about this topic in American debates today? Well, I think there's probably two shifts that I'm making and that, frankly, I made over the course of my career. I spent nearly 20 years working at a think tank and public policy advocacy squarely focused on economic inequality and the political inequality that feeds and creates economic inequality. And so I think one of the shifts is that the dominant way of seeing the relationship between class and race in my field of center-left you know, economics was that there's an inequality that's driven by policies, tax, trade, etc., and that it's driving, these forces are driving inequality, and then inequality is sort of accelerated by racism, by discrimination and disadvantage, and so that makes inequality worse for people of color. So that was one sort of conventional wisdom, and so it led us to talk about the solutions to inequality in purely economic terms and have a sort of nice, heartfelt afterthought about the disparate impact on people of color. But it really blinded us, I think, from seeing the way in which, really from a rather sociological, you know, social psychology, political science orientation, 
that economics needs to understand the way that racism in our politics and our policymaking is actually the driver of inequality in many instances, and it makes inequality worse for everyone. So that's one big shift as between the relationship between inequality and racism. And then the other is in some ways, a more challenging one to a broader set of folks than just the sort of, you know, economics fields and the field of economics advocates, which is that oftentimes we talk about racial competition, about the story of race and who we are to one another in a way that even those of us who want to see racial equality end up invoking a sort of zero-sum paradigm. And that zero-sum paradigm is really one that has its most offensive articulation by people like Donald Trump, the idea that the sort of winners and losers, the great replacement theory, the idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense, that we sort of can't share the good things in life, and that we are in this sort of competition for dominance. And yet... I think that sometimes when those of us who want to see a fairer and more just world are trying desperately to pull the wool down from under the eyes of so many people who want to ignore the existence of systemic racism, we insist on talking about white privilege and all of the different advantages that come from being white and the disadvantages that come from being a person of color. And in some ways, we're setting up the same paradigm. The idea that what's good for one group is bad for the other. And because the voices with the sort of ugliest zero-sum story are so loud right now, not just in the U.S., but across the globe, I think that as communicators, it's incumbent upon us to finish the sentence. And by that, I mean, say yes. There are all of these advantages to being white, to being a descendant of people who were on the upper end of a strict racial caste system. And yet, the world that we are seeking to create is not one where white people have less health care and worse funded schools and more contact with the police and, you know, drink more polluted water and breathe more polluted air. It's actually where we all prosper. Yeah, I was struck by that part of it sometimes on social media. And of course, social media brings out the worst in everybody and in every kind of political position. There's videos of cops sort of thoughtfully and carefully dealing, for example, with a white person who's mentally disabled. And people then would post these clips enraged, saying, you know, if this person were black, they would have been treated terribly. And it was nearly like they wanted the cop to treat this white person terribly in that situation. And I understand, of course, where the rage about police violence comes from and so on. But of course, the solution is for the cop to treat everybody in that situation respectfully and safely, rather than to have some kind of equalizing of that treatment. Yeah. I think those are really two very helpful frames. So let's delve a little bit more deeply into each of them. What does it mean that racism has really made inequality worse? You have some very compelling examples of this and some of us and other things. How is it that in the course of American history, racism has actually been an obstacle to economic equality and an obstacle to building public goods from swimming pools to lots of other things that could have sustained a more equal and a more flourishing society? You know, I grew up professionally trying to figure out what had shifted in our economic policy paradigm between the era of the sort of New Deal, the Great Compression, the era of shared prosperity. There are a lot of not-so-floral ways that economists and advocates describe the period roughly between the 1930s and the early 1970s when economic and income growth was fast and relatively quite evenly distributed. In fact, the income distribution for that period of time saw the lowest paid household incomes growing actually faster than the highest paid out households. It was, you know, the period of the American dream, the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, and was brought about by 
the policy regime of higher marginal tax rates, massive public investments, a lot more regulation, high levels of union density, a minimum wage that was roughly half the median wage, lots of benefits with work, etc. And we really had a very dramatic break from that policy regime in the 1970s, accelerating in the 1980s and 90s, and it ushered in what I call the inequality era, right, where we are today, where 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class, and half of adult workers are paid too little to meet their basic needs. And so, a big part of the job of being someone who wants to put an end to the era of inequality is to figure out what happened, what were the shifts, what were the policy shifts. And that was sort of obvious, right? You can write an economic history of what changed in our regulatory policy, our tax and trade policy, our labor policy. But what I didn't understand and often made me feel like I was sort of crazy, right? It was sort of like a gaslighting situation growing up in this era of inequality and knowing what I did about the economy as I became an adult was why, right? Why would the country that invented this thing called the American dream just like shut the lights out on it, you know, and tolerate this galloping inequality when we had actually responded to the first Gilded Age with this great um, expansion that was fair. And what was very helpful to me was that I quit my job running a think tank in 2017, and I set out on the road a series of trips that took me across the country multiple times. I started reading and listening to and talking to scholars of different disciplines than, than I'd had before in law and economics. And what came together was a better answer, Yasha, for why. Why it is that we can't seem to have nice things anymore. And by nice things, I don't mean hovercraft backpacks. I mean things like universal childcare and paid family leave and universal healthcare and a well-funded school in every neighborhood. And I mean, we, as in white Americans, who are the largest share of the uninsured and the impoverished and Americans of color who are disproportionately so. And what I came upon was this real thing that I actually walked across physically that actually was also a powerful metaphor for the political and social dynamics that would end up shifting the economy from the golden age of shared prosperity to the inequality era. And the thing that I walked across was a wide, flat expanse of grass where buried 10 feet underground of this lawn is the carcass of a swimming pool that is in Montgomery, Alabama, in their central park called Oak Park. And it used to hold over a thousand swimmers. It used to be this sort of glorious, well-funded, lavish public swimming pool that was built as part of a building boom in the 1930s and 40s of public goods, roads, bridges, schools, libraries, parks, and these swimming pools that were sort of this glittering reflection of a deeper ethos that said, the government is going to be responsible for, it's its duty to ensure an ever-increasing standard of life for its citizens. And such nice things as a swimming pool, right, when there wasn't air conditioning, are going to be part of every flourishing town and county in the country. There were 2,000 of them roughly across the country. And they were usually, certainly in Montgomery, Alabama, very explicitly segregated, but also in the North and Midwest and West. And if it wasn't like with a whites-only sign, it would just be this racial segregation enforced by custom and enforced by intimidation and violence. And for me, the swimming pool, literally, it was a New Deal WPA creation in many of these places, it was part of a whole ethos. And of course, the things that were public goods that I cared more about were things like social security for the elderly, a massive investment in housing that workers could afford, as well as mass home ownership, really kind of an unprecedented commitment to the idea that working class people could own something that would be an intergenerational bedrock of wealth that would appreciate over time, the GI Bill, the labor standards and collective bargaining rules in the New Deal. These were all public goods. And Yasha, to a degree that I actually didn't even know. I'm a Black woman 
this history that I gleaned and started researching in my journey to write The Sum of Us was history that my own grandparents and great-grandparents and parents had lived, and yet I really wasn't as aware as I should have been. It really speaks to blind spots in our education. All of those public goods were in one way or another racially exclusionary. Housing, massive investment, yet predicated on the never substantiated idea that Black people would be too much of a credit risk, you know, based on maps that the New Deal government commissioned, surveying the greatest metro areas to the block level and showing their racial and ethnic character and designating the ones with high Negro concentration as do not lend areas for private investment, requiring racial covenants, saying that private developments to get any kind of federal backstop insurance would have to be sold to people who are, quote, wholly of the Caucasian race. This is the New Deal government who did this, right? Social Security excluded the two job categories that most Black workers were in in a compromise with the South, right? That's domestic work and agricultural work. Even the GI Bill was race neutral on its face, but the benefits were filtered through often racially segregated housing and education sectors. Even the labor standards, right? When so many of the AFL unions were racially exclusionary, it didn't benefit Black workers equally. And so, the whole economic system of public goods was like the recreation system of public pools for whites only, largely. But when the civil rights movement empowered Black families to be able to say and get the courts to agree with them, you know, it's our tax dollars that have funded those public goods all along. And in the case of the swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too, Many towns and cities across the country did what Montgomery, Alabama did, and they drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. Literally drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt and gravel. And this idea of the drained pool for me means so much. It happened all over the country, not just in Alabama, but Ohio, West Virginia, New Jersey, California, Washington State. It signifies what a white population that has been taught to disdain and distrust their fellow Americans will do out of that sort of zero-sum mentality that there has to be someone on top and they'd rather destroy a public good than share it. And it was mirrored in a really radical and sudden shift of public opinion among the majority of white voters away from public goods of all kinds, away from a sort of economic policy paradigm that said the government should do things like provide a universal basic income and a federal job guarantee. This used to be popular with 70% of white American voters in 1956 and 1960, but by 1964, the share of white voters who wanted this sort of muscular government guarantee of economic security fell in half at the height of the civil rights movement. And so for me, this drained pool politics phenomenon became a better answer to why the American majority would turn their backs on the formula that had created such middle-class prosperity and instead say, we're willing to go it alone. We're willing to build backyard swimming pools. We're willing to trust a market that is still going to be far more dominated, frankly, by white men than the public sector. And we are willing, frankly, as W.B. Du Bois wrote, to accept some non-material psychological wages of whiteness instead of actually having higher wages. We're willing to have a real material loss in order to still feel like we are on the top of a really brutal hierarchy. It's funny, as you were saying these last few sentences, I was reminded that sitting on a train today, I got talking to somebody sitting opposite me and they told me an old joke, which I think originates in sort of Polish socialism, but it's already germane here, which is that some kind of fairy or something turns up and promises a man that he can have whatever he wants, you know, he can have one wish uh, fulfilled, no questions asked. The only thing is that whatever he gets, his neighbor will get twice as much of. And so he thinks for a long while and is really tortured by this. And finally, he has the right response. And he says, kill half of my cows. <laughs> and so there is this kind of, you know, deep human psychology of competition, right? And that you would rather be poorer yourself as long as the people who you're in competition with or you want to feel superior to or you want to keep down at a lower rung of the social ladder are even doing worse than you. So as I understand it, you think that this kind of psychological mechanism in the context of American racism helps to explain 
not just uh, racial disparities between white and black Americans, but really the sort of turn from a public goods oriented set of public policies in the 1950s and 1960s that sustained social security and investment in local public schools and libraries and all of those kinds of things. And that when Black Americans gained access to those facilities, people start to say, well, in that case, you know, I'm happy for some of my cows to die as long as all of their cows die too. Is, is that sort of roughly the causal story here? Yeah, I think it is. You know, sociologists would call it last place aversion. And I think what's important to me in The Some of Us, I try to really underscore that this isn't only human nature. This is also a reflection of the fact that everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And there are power dynamics, there are political actors, there are self-interested elites who are setting up a system where being on the bottom of the social hierarchy is so miserable that, you know, anybody worth his salt would actually try to climb over his neighbor to get away from that bottom rung. When I tell the economic history in that way of the drained pool politics, there was a political movement that was thrilled to capture white voters away from the party of the New Deal that they had been so supportive of since that time and move them over to the right on a politics of racial grievance once the party of the New Deal also became the party of civil rights, right? And there's that famous Lyndon Johnson quote, Lyndon Johnson, of course, being the last Democrat to win the majority of white voters when running for president to this day. He signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, made good on the promise that everyone who contributed to our nation's prosperity should benefit from it. And as he said at the moment, lost the South. What he didn't know was that he lost the white voters in the country overall. But he had this great quote where he says, and I think it illustrates the role of politicians and political storytellers in creating this kill half my cows mentality, which is, he says, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Right? And so in our politics, emptying his pockets for you is voting for cuts to government services, you know, destruction of union power, shipping jobs overseas with tax cuts for the wealthy. And that economic program has been something that the majority of white voters, while many of them have suffered under that economic system, have gladly sort of given over their votes because of marketing to their cultural sense of identity, where they're emptying out their pockets in some ways in order to be a part of the us that is still seen as at the core of American identity and reflected in the power structure on the right wing of mostly white men. So I have a question about this line of argument, though, sort of in the back of my mind as I read your book and what I was reminded of right now, which is a sort of parallel debate that's been happening in European politics and political science about Europe for the last few decades. So there's a few articles that have claimed that support for generous welfare state policies go down in various European countries when there's high levels of immigration. And it seems to me that the logic behind that claim is very similar to the logic behind your claim, right? Which is to say, sure, we're in favor of these general programs to provide public goods and so on, as long as, quote unquote, people like you and me benefit from it. But when those people who I don't trust or those people who I feel superior to come in and suddenly they're getting some of the benefits of that, well, in that case, perhaps better abolish it. What's strange about the sort of ideological context is that in the debate about European politics, that argument is treated like a conservative argument, even for the political scientists who have published those papers tend to be on the left, like most political scientists. And there's sort of a very strong rejection of this line of research from the left, because they kind of want to say, well, hang on a second, this would imply that if we want a strong welfare state, we shouldn't have immigrants. And obviously, we don't want that conclusion. So let's deny the premise. So I was wondering both, I'm sure you don't want to speak particularly to whether that research is true or not, unless you happen to have looked at it in the <laughs> European context. But sort of how should we think about that 
tension, right? Where it feels like there is a liberatory potential in what you're saying, that it's pointing to, you know, if only we overcome that instinct, if only we're able to cooperate, everybody's going to benefit. And that's a really powerful, optimistic story. On the other hand, of course, it also has the potential of saying, well, so perhaps things just don't work when you have more immigrants in the European context. Yeah. You know, it's just too hard to make this multiracial democracy in America work in the kind of way we would want. How do we deal with the two different ways you could take that line of argument? Well, as you say in your book, right, this is a great experiment. We haven't figured this out yet. How do you create a multiracial democracy that is equal and where everyone thrives? And so where I fall in that debate is to say that it is hard, but we can only tackle what we face. And so my intervention in the sort of U.S. kind of progressive economics field with the some of us has been to say so many of my mostly white class-focused peers didn't have a language for why it was so hard for their great ideas about making everybody's lives better were falling on deaf ears among white voters. And many of them didn't know that the majority of white voters had rejected the Democratic Party at the presidential level ever since LBJ signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, right? There was just sort of an ignorance about the correlation between racial resentment and that weakened support and the way that, for example, a white person with a high level of racial resentment against Black people has 60 percentage points less support for more government spending in general, right? There's really this association in the American political context. I believe it is the case in many European countries as well, but in the American political context, it's very clear, right? Government is the actor that betrayed white voters when it went from being the enforcer of the racial hierarchy, right? Drawing the red lining maps, printing the whites only signs to being the upender. And if you ask a sort of grassroots conservatives, they will say government is on the side of those other people. And whether it's welfare, which sort of is kind of an inflated role of how many people of color are dependent on it, or that it exists really much at all anymore, or, you know, affirmative action also inflated. College admissions, for example, a white person is far more likely to be competing with another white person than a person of color, etc. right? So government is really the actor. And therefore, when liberals ride in on their government horse, and I think this was more acute before Trump made a lot of this more clear, but didn't have a language for understanding what was going on. What were the dynamics that were making the sort of revival of public goods less popular among white Americans than it was among people of color? The other thing I'll say, though, is that I think like you, Yasha, I'm interested. I'm a hopeful person. I think it's worth fighting for this great experiment. I use that word experiment as well. I think it's accurate. And I'm really interested now in the how, in what does it take to build a strong, resilient, multiracial democracy. I don't think we have to be ruled by the baser instincts of human nature that are tribal and competitive. I do believe that everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so we have to grab hold of the megaphone and we do need stories to be told that are hopeful, that model for us how to behave, how to treat one another, what to believe about one another. And that's actually why I created the podcast version, the sort of spinoff of The Some of Us, just these past few months. Because that audio documentary, which takes me back out on the road to nine different places in the country, is exclusively focused not on what's wrong with the country and diagnosing the cost of racism to everyone, which is what the book lays out, but the final idea in the book, which is the idea that we can gain through cross-racial solidarity, the idea that I call a solidarity dividend. And so the podcast is me going into communities and finding stories of people actually coming together across lines of race and figuring it out and asking them what it took and how they did it and when they stumbled and how they recovered. And I felt compelled to do that, to get back out on the road in the middle of a pandemic on the heels of the Some of Us, the book, because honestly, I was intellectually curious. I wanted to know 
in a deeper way what it takes, particularly now, right, in this moment when most opinion polls say that Americans feel like we are so helplessly, hopelessly divided. And I left that journey more hopeful than I was when I began it. What made you more hopeful and what do you think do the people who are able to come together and work together on solving the local problems have in common? What empowers some people to see the positive sum potential and what, I suppose, conversely drives other people into that zero-sum mentality? So I'm reminded right now of an episode that we did where I went to rural Maine, small town Maine. And the episode is actually the social and economic problem is the loss of the family farm, right? We are losing just tremendous numbers of, of farmland and numbers of farmers who are aging out and selling their land. And it's a massive problem for, you know, local food systems and for our local, particularly rural economies. And in that episode, a group of Somali, ethnic Bantu refugees and immigrants who came to Maine after the Somali Civil War and who were met with a lot of grassroots sort of welcome arms and charity and immigrant integration at the local level, but were also met with, you know, fire and brimstone anti-immigrant politics at the state level and at the municipal level. It was sort of a proto-Trump kind of demonization of immigrants, tying them to welfare, etc. And yet, you know, here amidst all of that is this group of Somali Bantu people who were farmers in their homeland. And the community association is led by this amazing man named Muhyiddin. And, you know, everyone's working in bakeries and factories and retail stores, but what they really want to do is farm. And... He looks around and sees all this green land, it's rural Maine, and he wonders, how does one go about getting some of this land to productive use, you know? And as you can imagine, a refugee Muslim black man <laughs> looking for it to buy land in Maine, like what could go wrong, you know? And in the summer of 2020, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and a mass consciousness raising, the largest social demonstration movement in American history, Many people across the country who are white begin to ask questions of themselves, their lives, their communities that they have not asked. And so the small organic farmer, family farmer kind of community in Maine begins to ask in this state that's the whitest state in the country, why is farming so white? Why is there nary a black farmer in Maine, you know, or very few? And it's at that same time that the Somali Association is fundraising to buy land in a community land trust. And they're looking to buy the land of a third-generation dairy farmer who is totally a white conservative, probably like a little bit libertarian. And the fundraiser ends up taking off like wildfire because of the mass consciousness raising that is happening at the time. And Charlie ends up being, I think, more willing to sell his land to a group of 200 African refugee Muslim farmers because of the popular conversation at the time. I want to say that because the mass demonstration moment of the summer of 2020 did play an outsized and pivotal role in each of the stories that I ended up finding over the course of this year, 2022. I think it's important to say that there are so many other things, right, that mattered, authentic relationships, organizing, self-awareness, right? And I talk about those in the finale of the series. But I think a lot of the kind of elite chatter about the summer of 2020 and that uprising is that it's gone. There's a backlash to it. It may have even made the racial conversation worse because it, you know, inflamed the right wing and then demoralized the left. And when I'm out in this country talking to people who are not paid to be politicians, not paid to talk in the media, there has just been a quiet shift that I don't think is easily dismissed. You know, the signs are not in the windows of the homes. People aren't, you know, having protests every day. But almost to a person, the people that I talk to in mostly red and purple states had felt some shift some had learned some things, had asked new questions, had been willing 
to partner with different people than they would have before 2020. And so I do think that mass movement and a wall-to-wall media narrative and sort of elite conversation about what kind of country we want to be matters, right? That storytelling does matter. And I don't think it's easily swept back under the rug. I don't think people can unlearn what they learned at that moment of sort of mass curiosity about racial injustice in America. That's interesting. And I think it's interesting to think about how the impact of the summer of 2020 was very different, let's say, in already mostly liberal or progressive contexts, where I personally see it as being somewhat mixed. And then in contexts where perhaps people in more conservative parts of the country, and so on, where people just hadn't been as aware of some of the injustices or haven't asked those questions and you know the moment sort of pushed them to reckon with why are there no black people at the church why are there black people in their community and so on that's really interesting and inspiring i have a question about one of the shifts we've seen in the last few years which is the embrace of uh, race conscious or race sensitive policy or more broadly the embrace of the goal of equity now there's different interpretations of each of those terms, and they mean very, very different things in different kind of contexts. But I wondered, as I was reading your book, how you felt about some of those policies, because I think clearly you share the goal of overcoming the deep inequality that continues to exist in this country for historical reasons. I also wondered whether you thought that there is a risk of doing the opposite of a sort of second shift in the frame, which is getting away from talking about racial competition with zero-sum games, when you have policies like the state of New York saying you can only exit Paxlovid when doses of it were rare early in 2022, if either you have a serious pre-existing condition or you're non-white, do you worry that the embrace of the kind of race-sensitive public policies which actually distinguish how the state should treat individual people on the basis of their race primes people to think of race as this kind of competition and to think, hey, we got to stand up for the interests of our group in order to make sure that we get our own? Or how do you feel about these policies, which I suppose that smartly designed might help to overcome some of these structural injustices, but which might also really push people to double down on thinking about public policy in the zero-sum games in which members of different racial groups are in direct competition with each other. I did not know about that Paxlovid policy, so I'm a little hesitant to be like, yeah, well, here's what I think about that, because that was not something I experienced as a New Yorker. Sure. To give you another example, there was a relief fund for small businesses and restaurants that started at the beginning of the pandemic, originally under the Trump administration. There was an order of priority, which was simply by the amount of revenue you'd lost, right? So if you'd lost 70% of your revenue, you were first in line. If you'd lost 50% of revenue, you were second in line and so on. And then the Biden administration tried, it was contested in the courts, but tried to shift it such that the order of priority was by who owned the business so that people of color and women were first in line. And then if the business owner was a white man, they would sort of be at the end of the line. And that mattered because it wasn't just about when you'd get the money because there's limited funds available, right? So the fund was going to run out eventually. Right. So I think in both of those examples, if you start the story with, for some reason, the government is playing favorites and picking Black people and brown people and women over white men, then it does seem, if I'm a white man, possibly unfair. But if you start the story with understanding, for example, in the case of the PPP loans, the data of how many times over, even controlling for other factors, white-owned businesses and larger businesses received PPP loans than Black businesses and minority-owned small businesses, and how much under the Trump administration's rules, minority and women-owned businesses were very much in the last in line. It makes more sense to say 
that it's necessary to fix the rules to understand how it is that minority-owned businesses access capital and how much more likely they were to, for example, as one study showed, have a financial relationship with a fintech company and not a traditional bank. And if we know anything about the history of banking in America, we can understand why that could have been. There's well-documented and ongoing discrimination against Black borrowers, particularly at our major banks. And so the sum result is still that white businesses were overrepresented among PPP loan beneficiaries. And this is not a small thing. This is, in many cases, millions of dollars of a loan that was then canceled, therefore free money, right? And so part of the challenge is there's been such willful blindness about the existing inequalities and how policies that appear to be race neutral, end up creating wildly unfair advantages for white people, that when there's any tweak that then, quote unquote, names race as if the neutral thing that still had these wildly unfair impacts wasn't racialized, then the critique can go of the racial redress and not of the unjust system in the first place. And it has very rarely been the case. And, you know, I think that the Biden administration's first year is a really good example of attempts coming from the reckoning of 2020, coming from real understanding of the way that so many of our government and business systems are racially unjust that we've got to do better, they're usually short-lived and inadequate. You know, take, for example, the fact that the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, unbelievable, explicit, nefarious discrimination and the denial of support for Black farmers over the course of a century. Trump very famously, you know, was shoveling out cash to farmers during his trade war with China. And 0.1% of Black farmers received any of the economic aid provided to farmers, $26 billion in the Trump administration. So you start there, a very recent example, on top of the decades and decades of discrimination that has been well-documented and litigated. And then the Biden administration comes in and says, given all of the debt relief that farmers of color have not gotten, while white farmers have, we're going to have a program that's specifically for farmers of color. Farmers of color were sort of the original people who made up the agricultural system in this country, and it's dwindled now to less than 1% of American farmers are Black. And that was immediately litigated and frozen, right? So it never happened. And so I think a mature society that had a real understanding of where the starting line began would be willing to say that one size doesn't fit all and would be willing to attribute some of the current higher economic and social position that white Americans have to an unjust system that needs to be corrected. And to say that the world that happens with those slightly race-conscious policies, those well-targeted forms of redress, is not a world in which white people are at the back of the bus, but it is a world where people are equal. You know, and there's the old saying that when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And so that's the complicated work. Yeah, so I agree with much of what you just said. Let me push you a little bit on two points. So the first is sort of a set of normative questions, which we can mostly leave to the side for now. Like I do think there are some moral concerns about some of these programs. In the case of Paxlovid, for example, Asian Americans who thankfully have very low rates of suffering from serious cases of COVID, of dying from COVID, were prioritized for the drug. Nevertheless, and if the sort of justification for a set of racial priorities is that some racial groups are dying from this disease at higher rates, which is a very plausible justification, 
that doesn't make sense. So, you know, there you might have normative concerns about an overly broad category of people of color and the way it's employed in discourse and the way that that then has perhaps empirically quite disturbing results, because surely we would want to use these drugs at the very least in such a way, one of the considerations at least, to maximize the number of people we save with this drug, as long as we have limited doses of it, right? But let's put those normative concerns to the side for a moment and just sort of focus on what inherently is a little bit squishier and is a kind of comms challenge, or it's a kind of <laughs> how do we build a narrative that people will actually embrace, right? So let's say for the sake of argument that normatively all of these programs are 100% right and justifiable for the sake of argument. So even then, if you are so concerned as you are in your work about look at all these times in American history in which people were able to exploit this perception, often this false perception, that white and black Americans are in direct competition with each other, that if black Americans are going to be doing better than we did in the past, that means you, white Americans, are going to do really badly, and so you've got to keep them down. If that is at the core of your explanation for a lot of what's happened in this country over the last 50 years, and the core of some of the concerns you have about the future. You're a hopeful person with a hopeful message, but you think that if we're going to build a hopeful future, we've got to be able to overcome that pitfall, that danger. Shouldn't we nevertheless abstain from many of these kinds of policies which are going to be framed in this way in a lot of a country, where a lot of people are going to say, hang on a second, why are you giving this grant to a restaurant, this drug to a person because they filled out a form and they ticked that they were one race rather than another. And doesn't this put us in direct competition? And if we're going to be in direct competition, shouldn't I fight for the interests of my group? No matter what you think about the normative question of it, shouldn't that make us really careful about substantive public policies and really careful about a sort of rhetorical tick that I think Democrats have often embraced, where even policies that actually are race neutral, presented as though they weren't race neutral, presented as though the primary purpose of them was to advance equity. Shouldn't we be nervous about that in terms of our ability to sustain the political will we need to get to the future that you're hoping for? Well, as you can imagine, I've thought a lot about this. And then think in terms of the substantive policy I would hate for policymakers to ignore data of racial disparities for fear of angering an already angry white voter, right? I mean, it's just when it comes to COVID, this is life and death. When it comes to the pandemic, this is yet another moment when Black wealth could be, you know, cut in half by a financial crisis. There are real consequences for people who have always had the short end of the stick in ignoring and not trying to do what's right to make the whole better, which is make sure that no one falls too far behind. And then when it comes to the thing I think you really want to talk about, which is like, how do you sell this stuff, right? How do you recognize that if the data is correct and the majority of conservative and moderate white people think Black people take more from society than they give, how do you speak to white voters about the need for racially conscious policies without further alienating them? Again, like the experiment of democracy in a multiracial context, I think it's hard, but I think it's worth doing, right? And that's why before I left my job running Demos, the think tank, I worked on a huge project that really tried to answer this question. What is the political story, the issue campaign story that we can tell to create a multiracial constituency for progressive policies, progressive economic policies and civil rights and voting rights and anti-discrimination policies. Uh, it's a project called the Race Class Narrative. And what we discovered was that in many contexts, there's a big group of people who are persuadable, who are sort of 60% kind of in the middle. And they're not persuadable because they are like dead set in the middle of an ideological spectrum and they're kind of milk toast versions of left and right. It's that, and I'm talking about on questions of race and class, which are really very tangled up together, race, class, and government. But rather, they're persuadable because they could tell you 
the left story and they could tell you the right story because they've heard them both. There's sort of credibility in both. And it's frankly just a question of what they've heard the most, most recently and most compellingly. (laughs) And so to me, it says, you know, the race class narrative, one of the outputs was a whole set of actual messages about how you start with reconnecting listeners to their common humanity. No matter whether we're white, black, or brown, no matter where we come from, we all want to be able to put food on our tables for our kids, you know, like just remind us that like we have more in common than we have apart. And then name a common enemy and say, but some politicians, greedy corporations want to line their pockets while pointing the finger at new immigrants and black and brown people and poor people, right? Talk about the strategic racism and the use by the wealthy of the politics of division to keep us apart from one another. And then come back in and sort of reassert that we've been able to overcome that division in the past and win big things because to be honest, you know, hope is a fleeting thing in American politics these days and really underscore that there's more that we have in common than what divides us. But also don't be afraid to say that some communities are going to need more to be made whole. And I will say that, you know, that research project that is ongoing, it's many years, many different campaigns and door knocking has sort of deepened it and made it better. It told me, A, that the idea of naming a common enemy who wants us to be divided is really important. And B, that the thing that I think, at least in the U.S. context, that we suffer the most from is a lack of strong, consistent, loud leadership, stories telling us how we got here, who we are to one another, and what we can be together. And when our loudest voices are Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, it's no wonder. When our Democratic voices are ones that are kind of clumsy with this stuff, and who, despite the advice that many of the consultants trained in the race class narrative give them, feel like they're often, usually white politicians, pandering to Black voters and saying, you know, Black voters, I'm going to cancel student loan debt because it really matters to you, as opposed to saying, heck, it matters to the entire economy. It matters to our entire society. It matters to, you know, you and your family and your neighbors, whether you're white, Black, or brown. It makes it harder. So I find the frame of the race class narrative quite compelling, which I think is basically narrative of your book in a way, right? It's saying, look, it's really important that we're able to fight for our common interests. And there's people who are trying to exploit divisions, racial divisions between us in order to make us incapable of having nice things, incapable of having these wonderful public goods and other things. And we're only going to make progress as a country and only going to overcome the rising inequalities and so on if we do that. I guess I worry that your addition of, oh, and then you can also say, well, of course, it means we have to do more for some groups than for others, isn't seen as a small addition in this discourse. And that, in fact, the change of tune and of emphasis within the Democratic Party is one of the reasons why, despite the unpopularity of Donald Trump, Democrats have trouble really expanding their vote in such a way as to inflict a crushing defeat on him. And certainly today, when you you know listen to public discourse, a lot of it, when you're talking about, look, there's these racial disparities in wealth and income, which, I mean, again, I think is a very real concern. I'm not trying to minimize or dismiss it. And, you know, one of the primary goals of a government is to overcome those disparities that doesn't sound like a class race narrative, right? That sounds like what we're focusing on doing, perfectly legitimate, is overcoming the deep inequality between races that has these historical roots. And so we're prioritizing this group. Now, that might be right normatively, but it sounds to me like a very, very different kind of soundtrack. Well, a few things. I mean, I think the Biden administration has been pretty consistent in trying to make the case whenever the president speaks about racial equity that it's in our best interest as a country. I talk about the zero sum. You know, the Biden folksy version of it is, you know, for too long we believe that a dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in yours. You know, like, I mean, he does his own riff on the zero sum, on naming it and calling it out and saying, you know what, 
when we do this, when we make sure that we have all of our best players on the field, this whole team is going to win, right? So I think the president, at least at his speech writers, have understood that it's important for him to make the case for racial equity in a way that explicitly names and rejects the zero sum and says that you can't be a successful team if you have so many of your players on the sidelines, right, because they're held back due to debt and discrimination and disadvantage. And I think it's a really important story for him to keep telling. There have been so many post-mortems on the 2016 election and the 2020 election. I would disagree with the characterization that it's the democratic shift to talking about race more explicitly that made us not defeat Trump by 7 million votes and win both houses of Congress. I think we could get into like a not actually that interesting conversation about the effect of Obama on white voters, the effect of Obama to Trump voters versus the effect of Obama to stay at home voters, all of that, right? But I think that the picture that is painted where it's like Democrats talk about race and therefore lose white voters, again, starts the story about 50 years too late because right? white voters were lost in 1964. But, and it is important to a really important constituency that is, of course, growing for there to be an understanding that today in America, a Black college graduate has less household wealth, right? Less savings, assets, securities, home equity, than a white high school dropout. And that's terrible for that Black college graduate who has done everything they're supposed to do and still is not as financially secure as a white person who dropped out of college. And it's terrible for our country. And we've got to be able to say that and be adult enough to own that without anybody who's white, fearing that that means Armageddon for them. You know, it's just, it's about, I think, a process that we need to do. And I talk about this in the end of the book to some of us, where we really admit, are educated, learn, tell the truth about what got us here and who we are to one another. And where we become much more vigilant and see for what it is, sort of unmask the demagogues and the self-interested elites who want to fan the flames of a culture war while secretly advancing an economic agenda of drained pool politics, you know, whether it's the book bans and the attacks on our children's freedom to learn that are resulting in defunding of public libraries and white parents fleeing from public schools, shrinking the tax base. And it's all ultimately about an economic project. And the culture war is being funded and organized and bankrolled by people who have an economic interest in seeing us divided. And what gives me hope is that, you know, as I said, the energy of the movement of 2020 is settled into the fibers of people in a way that has shaped the way they see each other and they see their neighbors. What gives me hope is that people are beginning to understand, as many people in Memphis did in the first episode of the podcast, where I travel to Memphis and see how Black Memphis and White Memphis, and there is such a thing, neighborhoods in Memphis are 99% Black and 99% White to this day, where they came together because an oil pipeline was threatening the Black neighborhood, right? You know, threatening to sue little old black ladies on eminent domain to get their land to run this pipeline through. And that's just a story as old as time, right? You know, black people are twice as likely to live near toxins as white people. That was going to be sort of an open and shut case of environmental injustice. And only black people and bleeding heart liberals would have cared, right? But ultimately, the pipeline was also going to threaten the whole city of Memphis's aquifer that has is the source for the drinking water that is some of the cleanest sort of best tasting drinking water in the United States. And parts of white Memphis woke up, realized, and this is again in the wake of the summer of 2020, that they did need to defend the little old black ladies because ultimately, as I show throughout the sum of us, the injustices that target one community 
ultimately make systems more dysfunctional and put at risk everybody else too. Not as much, right? The burden is always borne disproportionately by the targeted community, but the story of the Memphis aquifer and the pipeline that black and white Memphis came together to stop is a really great example of how environmental justice is actually good for white people. And that if we don't let there be sacrifice zones where polluters can dump their poisons, then our water will be cleaner and our air will be cleaner for everyone. I do believe that equality and in fact, equity that just is eyes open and not willfully blind to the data that shows where the problems are concentrated is the way to make systems fairer and better for everyone. Black-white economic inequality has cost the U.S. GDP $16 trillion over the last 20 years. The world in which a Black college graduate has enough cash in the bank and home equity to start a great small business, and when the next pandemic comes, isn't shut out of the PPP system because of who the administration is, is a better world for our economy and our society. We've got to see that. We've got to know that when students who are predominantly of color have $23 billion less of public funding in their school districts than majority white school districts, that that means a heck of a lot of heart surgeons and neuroscientists and poets and lawyers and judges and future presidents that are not going to be there. And that's not a zero sum. That's really about recognizing that we need each other and we are interdependent and that if, frankly, a multiracial democracy can't work here and can't work on the energy of this most diverse generation in American history, then I don't know where or with whom it will. Very, very brief last question for listeners who are persuaded and inspired by all of this. What can people do concretely in their lives? What can people do concretely in their neighborhoods, in their communities, that hopefully will push us towards, you know, a narrative which understands the potential of the sum of us rather than pushing us towards a zero-sum politics? Gosh, thank you for that question. You know, there's some writers on race who say, you know, do the work, get your mind right, you know, understand our racial history, de-bias yourself. I think all that is fine and good, but I'm really more oriented towards action. So by listening to the Some of Us podcast, you're going to hear the stories of dozens of ordinary people who just took action to join across lines of race and difference to make their communities better. And that's really what I want to offer up as a way to make you feel better about your country and yourself and your neighbors and your community, stop you from doom scrolling and make you feel like you've done a little bit, you know? It's like exercise, like it actually gets your heart rate going and gets your blood flowing for you to take action. And by that, I mean, there are so many different multiracial organizations in your community that will bring you shoulder to shoulder and in common purpose with people who share your values, but maybe not your language and maybe not your racial background or your religious background. And those are the kinds of community-based institutions and efforts that I think are going to help us build a better America. Have a McGee. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.